Lack of industry experience is one of the biggest challenges for most acquisition entrepreneurs trying to buy a business. You have to convince sellers and brokers that you have the stuff to parachute into their industry and learn it fast enough to keep the business going. And then you have to actually deliver on that. It means that during the transition into the business you buy, you're not only learning the idiosyncrasies of the business itself, you're also learning the entire industry. This is challenging to say the least, and we accept it as simply the nature of the game. But there is a happy flip side. If you do have industry experience, you have a big advantage. Take today's guest, Michael Young, who was searching for a business to buy. Months into his search, he decided to spin up from scratch an accounting practice for SMBs. The knock-on effects of doing so were hugely beneficial, including meeting the owner of the $4 million accounting practice Michael would then go on to buy. Now, admittedly, this isn't a playbook that can be copy-pasted. Michael's situation was unique in a number of ways, but there are lessons here, among them. If you can find any way to get experience and credibility in an industry where you might want to buy a business, it is a significant unlock. See what lessons you draw from this conversation with Michael Young, owner of Bay Business Group. Quick announcement, don't forget the webinar this Friday, The Anatomy of an LOI. We're going to deconstruct an actual LOI. You'll leave not only with a deep understanding of this critical document, but a copy of the LOI template for you to use in your own deals. It's this Friday, February 2nd at 11 a.m. Eastern. Link to register at the very top of the show notes. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs. And on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. Listeners of Acquiring Minds know that for almost any business you acquire, its success comes down to the people and how you develop and manage them as their new leader. Thing is, in addition to management, there is also a lot of process and bureaucratic work when it comes to your new employees. Payroll, compliance, HR technology, hiring, to name but a few. These processes are crucial to get right, but at the same time distract from where you want to be putting your energy, in leadership. So, Aspen HR is an HR firm and PEO that takes this work off your plate and handles it with the care it demands. Aspen is owned and run by Mark Sinatra, himself a successful former searcher. So Aspen's own leadership understands the HR challenges that searchers have post-acquisition. The firm is offering Acquiring Minds listeners a complimentary pre-acquisition HR and PEO review for your target business. Check out AspenHR.com or contact Mark directly at Mark at AspenHR.com. Michael Young. Welcome to Acquiring Minds. Thanks for having me, Will. Awesome to be here. Michael, you started your career in accounting. You sought a stable, predictable path. Accounting gave you that. But what you gained in stability, you lost in control. Buying a business gave you that. We're going to hear all about it. But start us off, please, Michael, with some background on you. Yeah, so... 
I grew up <clears throat> around small business entrepreneurs. That's what my dad did. Grandparents, great grandparents, all owned and ran small businesses. And so uh, I saw the good and bad as a kid. And around the time I was probably eight or nine, the, well, my dad and grandfather were running a small packaging business and watched that basically go belly up. And so I thought I wanted then something stable. And so to me, accounting for a big firm was was that was stable. And so started off at a I moved at, to New York working for PricewaterhouseCoopers, um, and they've got a great uh, machine. Kind of once you get in. Um, they always kind of put another step in front of you. And so was on that, was on that escalator and not always intentionally and kind of got to the doorstep of partner and was like, did I really mean to be, be here this entire time? And so, um, that's kind of along the way. Then I started looking at, uh, got exposed to the ETA world and was like, oh, wow. Like, I think this is actually what I'm looking for. And so jumped off the escalator and, uh, did a, did a 360 of sorts, I guess. Um, ended up buying a small accounting firm, but um, yeah, here I am. Great. Uh, thank you for that, Michael. I'm going to uh, dig into a few of those details. First of all, take us all the way back to eight or nine years old, seeing this business that your dad and grandfather owned, ran, go belly up. I guess we already know what that does to the mind of a, a, a of a young boy because it, it it kind of dictated the path that you would take, at least in early adulthood. But but maybe take us back. What, what's that like? Is that traumatic or, or are you too young to really perceive how hard it is? I mean, just what, what's it yeah, like I to mean, be I in mean, a household at that age when that's happening? Obviously didn't know all the details at that time. I just saw all of a sudden there was a lot of stress between my dad and grandfather and it all came back to the to the business. I had an awesome childhood, great childhood, would do it 10 times, do it every time again. It was just that stress came home. And so that that then kind of formed my where I thought I want what I thought I wanted. And so what, what happened was kind of now I've learned more of the story, but a couple of good business lessons was there was one large customer that, um, and what they made or assembled was electric charcoal starters. What you'd use for your backyard charcoal grill, plug into the wall, get your charcoal grill going. So they assembled those for Craftsman in Florence, Kentucky. Craftsman was a large percentage of business. Craftsman decides to go overseas, uh, starting in kind of the early nineties and that, the business kind of fell apart from there. Um, and my dad and father, grandfather had different ideas of kind of what to do to try and fix it. And ultimately, I think it permanently changed their relationship. And that kind of, I guess, permanently changed my, my trajectory as well. That's really kind of a, a story of, well, it's, it's obviously not maybe Rust Belt automotive offshoring, but it is a story of manufacturing, being offshored, and an American... Uh, owner and his employees being stuck with wondering what the heck to do. Yep, for sure. Yeah, okay. Although I guess it was, you know, in the early 90s, that was kind of the tail end of yeah, when I it mean, was it really was, happening it, badly. Yeah, I mean, it was the tail end of it. So, I mean, it wasn't like it was, this was like the 50s, 60s, 70s, like where a lot of this was happening. It was right. uh, a bit later. Just because, I mean, it was a small price. There wasn't a lot of margin to potentially do it. And so it was probably down the list since so they finally got to the bottom of the list of, of things to move. Well, you learned customer concentration then from an early yeah. <laughs> age. Um, I'm sure nobody was calling it that, but we all now know how important those two words are. And you also, I also know from the pre-call, which you skipped over a little bit, is what your dad did next, please. Yeah. So then I said I saw the good and bad growing up. So the good was my dad had a young family 
and with three kids and was like, what do I do next? And so he started uh, his own mechanical contractor. And so he had, <laughs> so mechanical contracting, commercial HVAC, um, that is like <laughs> very uh, uh, hot, uh, a hot button here in the ETA world. Um, yeah. But he started that without any, he was not a, not in the trades originally. Um, he didn't know the difference between a condenser and a compressor, but he knew how to treat people. He knew how to motivate and how to connect with people. And so we started that and he grew that into like 50 or 60 people uh, over the next 20 or 25 years. And so he was, um, so I saw him do be tremendously successful with that. It's so cool. And is that what he's doing today or has he retired? So he was, so he was a, a minority owner in kind of the, the, uh, that firm, they sold actually to one of the huge consolidators in the HVAC world, um, like two years ago. And so he's, uh, he's on the tail end. I think he's going to be retiring, uh, next year at some point. So he didn't sell to a searcher then? No, it was, we, we had kind of toyed around with it, but I mean, they, it was like, it would have been a big one to try and get done. It would have, and kind of, we can talk through it more, but it was something where I would have needed to get outside equity to try and make it work. And it was just, it wasn't, uh, it was too big. Just a little bit more on your dad being so good with people, because that's now an observation I've heard you make twice. Yeah. So, I mean, he uh, he he would tell you that was his motivation for growing the business, right? Because he had guys that would start with him at tech. And he's like, well, I want this guy to be able to come a project manager, because that's going to mean more income for him, more income for his family. And so he was then going out trying to grow and trying to develop opportunities for that for his team. And so his his core group of like seven or eight folks have been with him now for almost the life of the, that he had it. Um, and almost all of them started off as techs, like out of school or very early on in their careers. And they've, they're now in their forties and like or late forties and they've, they've grown with them. And so, um, he's the way he did it was like, he knows everything about them. Like he knows their kids' names. He knows what teams their kids play on. He knows the scores of their games last weekend. Like he knows all of that stuff. And so he just connects with them. And like, that's how he's, um, that's his superpower. That's really, I guess, uh, exhibit A of kind of servant leadership where, where he's, he's leading by just truly thinking about how he can serve his, his followers for lack of a better word. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, it was very no ego, leadership of like, Hey, look, what do you need? Let me help you. Like, how do we figure this out? So, yeah. Um, yeah. And that he, I mean, also important lessons there of like, he knows then like what his strengths are. So like, he was intentional about finding someone that he could work with. who was very super technical and like didn't know the difference between a condenser and compressor. And he then also then would go out and find someone who was like, he's okay with sales. He found someone who could also then help him on the sales and business development front. So it was like, good business lessons of like, know what you are and what you're not and fill in the gaps where, where you're not. And just out of curiosity, because it's a theme that comes up here so much, how technical did he ultimately become? How much did he learn? Did, does he yet, yet know what a condenser and what the difference <laughs> between a condenser and a compressor? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he, so he, he, he has, um, but I still think he would like, he would defer to his team. Like he could walk into a job and know what's going on. But like, I think that's part of also, he thinks it's important to have the respect to the team. And like, he's not getting away from it, but also, um, yeah, I'd say he, 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 he could handle his own job today, uh, just from, as you would have to, uh, just, uh, osmosis of, of everything you're seeing being in the business for 25 years. Now, uh, fast forward into your career, you're on the escalator up in your, your, your work as an accountant in at one of the big firms. 
And then you say to yourself, and, and you kind of, I guess, are having success because you're just you find yourself continuing to to ascend. And then you say to yourself, "Wait, is this what I wanted?" So, so in fact, so I, I guess I'm trying to tease out how deliberate you were in your career versus how it was kind of just happening to you. Yeah, I mean, I think it was. I would say I wasn't that deliberate for the first, I don't know, six or eight years. I was. I knew that I wanted to progress and progress fast, but I didn't know that like, hey, I want to be doing this five or 10 years from now. And so the next promotion was always like, okay, that seems like a good hurdle. And then once I get there, then I can kind of go find what I need to find. And that was always kind of, I mean, it's, it tells you something about organizational structure and kind of PP motivating and retaining people. But uh, yeah, that was kind of always there. And so um, I think as... You start trying to like my wife and I then kind of personal life is like, okay, like we want to start having a family, like how, like, what does that mean for me and my career? And like, and so that's when it started thinking about like, that's what's prompted the like, okay, am I doing what I want actually want to be doing? And so don't get me wrong. Like I was in the due diligence phase. So like I started off doing quality of earnings. And so it was always interesting work with a ton of smart people, saw lots of exciting deals. Um, <clears throat> but there was always like, I just wanted more, uh, and I guess it was kind of a challenge. I wanted more control. And so I wanted to be able to like, if I saw someone on my team going above and beyond, I kind of wanted the direct ability to reward them or give them what I felt like they deserved. Um, or I wanted the ability to actually make the business or operating decisions. And so a lot of times we'd see companies and be like, they should be doing this or should be doing that. But then we would leave and never really kind of see what happened. And so it was kind of like an also mentality of like, put up or shut up. Like, if you think you can do this, like go see if you can actually do it. Um, so that was all kind of going on. Um, and so what originally led me to ETA, so it was, um, I was at University of Chicago. They've got the ETA program there that kind of opened my eyes to it. Um, and my wife had been at University of Chicago and she actually, before I was like, she's like, I think you'd be pretty good at this ETA thing. You should look at it. And so that originally started me down the path. I reached out to one of the accelerator um, heads um, and was like, hey, just trying to learn more. And the next thing I knew, I was in their process for looking at like their kind of people who then stay there, search, and then go out and operate. And that made me realize... And so it was, again, kind of got put in the process without being super intentional about it. Um, and I got rejected. And so they were like, what if you just went in to work for one of our portfolio companies? And so we can kind of talk more about it, but that was a huge, like, I thought I'd be a shoe in like way overconfident. And part of the feedback was like, what you need, I don't think you actually understand enough about ETA. Like, sure, you've been around deals, but I feel like you don't actually understand it. So took that as a challenge. I then went out and talked to a hundred plus searchers, operators, investors. Um, wasn't smart enough to create a podcast around it, uh, but uh, <laughs> did that and learned a ton. I even then went, and interned for a searcher um and that was great i got it like even while i was working full-time got to really see the insides of like what i felt like worked and didn't work during a search um and so it all kind of got me ready to go do my own thing just to elaborate on a few things there so you're at university of chicago where you're exposed to it booth of course is the is the business school of Uni university of chicago booth is a big name in ETA, it's one of the one of the business schools that where ETA is is kind of most uh, evangelized, and, and a lot of people coming out of Booth do it. Or I should say, a lot of people with MBAs that you see in search have come from Booth. Uh, how big is Booth, by the way? Every class? 
Uh, it's a good question. So I did the, actually did the executive program. I didn't do the full time ah. program. Um, okay. I want to say the full time is probably I think five or six hundred a class. The executive okay. program was like a hundred ish a class, and then there's they have an evening and part time program, and that probably has I would say almost like probably a thousand plus kids and or students in that. What do the following acquiring minds guests all have in common? Doug Johns, Morley Desai, Tim Erickson, Sharag Shaw. Shane Ursum. They all went through the Acquisition Lab, the accelerator and community for people serious about buying a business. But they represent just a sliver of the lab's success stories. The number of deals across the lab's cohorts now stands at over 120, with over $300 million in aggregate transaction value. The Acquisition Lab was founded by Walker Dibel, author of Buy Then Build, the book that introduced so many of you to the very idea of buying a business. The lab offers a month-long intensive, almost daily Q&A sessions with advisors, live deal reviews with Walker, deal team introductions, and an active community of serious searchers. Check out acquisitionlab.com, link in the notes, or email the lab's co-founder, Chelsea Wood, chelsea at buythenbuild.com. And then I just want to also, your decision to do this, I mean, you, 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 you like it, you see it, you like it, uh, buying a business, entrepreneurship through acquisition, your wife encourages you, she sees it in you, but you also are turning your, your back on potential partnership, making partner at your firm. You, you mentioned that earlier. And of course, that is kind of the top level, most kind of pedigree, most salary that somebody would be shooting for in the line of in, in at a big accounting firm. So just tell us a little bit more about what that path would have looked like so we can understand just how rich it was, what you were walking away from. Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, great financial compensation. Um, I think it's six figures. It can be seven figures. Um, I think there's... It can be seven figures. So you could, so partners, some, sure, if you sure. got there, over a million bucks a year. Sure. salary yeah. um and I, I mean i think i don't i should also just told like i was felt like i was right there on the doorstep was told right there on the doorstep but like i also i mean who knows with they've all had layoffs recently and like they just got rid of partners so like who knows what what actually would have happened but yeah um felt like i was right there but was being told that's the next step but yeah it's, i mean that is a very lucrative that is people are aiming for that it is a career pedestal and like you've you've made it from there is kind of for sure yeah um and that's again, like at that in itself, I didn't find, if I was being honest with myself, I didn't actually find it. I wasn't doing that for me. I was doing it for like the perception and like the everything else that went with it. And so, uh, yeah, I mean that, that with all my conversations with folks, the one thing, one piece of advice that I got, I feel like was the best was know exactly your reason why, for why you're going into this. And because there's going to be shitty days, there's going to be days where why well, you're like, why did I do this? Um, but I figured out my why and like that wasn't really tied to PwC through all those conversations. Does that made the decision much, much, much easier? But and just to be clear, how old would you have been if you'd made partner roughly in this time frame that you thought you might? Um, yeah, it would have been 34 or 35. So mid thirties at partner level. And then, so you'd be looking at another 30 years of, of partner. And I assume there's even tiers within partnership and you probably would have uh, inched up those, but it would have been quite a feather in your cap with still a long way to go. Great. That's helpful. 
Okay, so you figure out your why, which is wanting more control. And one of the ways you characterized your control was like wanting to be able to reward somebody on your team who kind of went above and beyond or um, make decisions. Uh, so you guys would see inside these businesses doing the Q of E's that you were doing. You'd see inside these businesses and be like, oh, they should do X or Y, um, but not actually have any implementation control there. So when you talk about control, are, is it really that stuff, really kind of tactical day-to-day -day control, or is it also kind of self-actualization control, big picture control, steering your own kind of ship, or all of the above? There's probably some truth to all of that. I think there's the professional side of like, yes, I wanted to be able to see if I could actually do what I thought I was capable of professionally. I also wanted the ability to like control and be home and be dad and be husband and be who I want, like who I wanted to be at home as well. And so that gave me that control to do that as well. Whereas the partner route, yes, you are kind of your own boss in a sense, but there's still a whole other like pyramid, even once you get the partner and your first, I don't know, 10 years, you're still kind of grinding to kind of get figured out. And I was like, I don't want the first, and we, we had just had our daughter, our first daughter around the same time of me leaving PwC and starting to search. And I was like, I don't want the first 10 years of my daughter's life to me be like cranking out 120 hour weeks like for PwC. And so that was the other side of it um, as well. So we just want to control personally of like, yes, like last week left, moved meetings calendars so I could go to breakfast with Santa and my daughter's thing. And so mm. like, I wouldn't maybe have the ability to do that, maybe not like elsewhere. And so that that was the other side of the control that um, that was looking for. Okay. You talk to an accelerator, you get kind of sucked into their their funnel, you're going along with it, but in fact, they don't accept you. Uh, Michael Michael experiences rejection for one of the, the earliest times and the first times in his career. Uh, and they tell you it's because it doesn't seem like you've done your homework around ETA. And so you take that as a challenge, as you said, and, and you start, you really hit the books, get on the phone, talk to tons, dozens and dozens of people. Um, that search accelerator, as essentially they all are, probably there's an exception or two in there, but generally when you talk about them as a category, they have traditional search fund economics. Um, and you, so you didn't go forward with them and then you do your research and you decide you want to do a self-funded search uh, any, anyway, or instead of traditional, a traditional search fund. So the economics of what you're now looking at are, and, and the kind of um, the independence, the autonomy are, are very different. Talk to me a little bit about uh, more about that decision because you'd been exposed to tra traditional search fund. You didn't get into the accelerator, but you probably still could have circled back around a guy from Booth with connections and stuff and raised a traditional search fund had you really set your mind to it. Why didn't you? Yeah, I mean, it, it comes back to uh, very one, like the control of like, I want to be in very specific areas. I wanted to be doing in businesses that I wanted to be involved with. And like, I feel like you lose some of that independence autonomy if you are raising a fund because there's certain expectations um, that folks are going to have. And so that, and then for the other side of it is like my wife and I are fortunate to be in a financial spot where we could put down a pretty sizable equity check for a business in the, in the, and you going SBA route. And so, um, and I also always knew that like there was, did have networks from PwC, from Booth, my wife and I both did of like, even if we found a two or three million dollar EBITDA business that's going to be above the SBA world, like we could find at that point kind of the 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 investors to to make it work, and so that was like, and kind of again going back to like the why it's like, why are we going to be looking? I think there's traditional and 
accelerators have much more flexible in kind of what you're looking at and, and where you're going now. But again, if it was all about like family and then also being able to do what I want to be doing, like, and we financially can make it work, it's like, it seems like self, self-funded was, was the right way to go. Okay. So now we are at uh, the doorstep of your search. Tell us about it. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, uh, I feel like there was the first three or four months is like a honeymoon phase where you're, it's easy to get up and get going and like you're uh, talking to folks, but that, that after three or four months was really kind of where I had a wall. And my, my search was doing, was doing kind of a lot of the same stuff other folks are doing, talking to, was doing, talking to brokers, talking to intermediaries, and then reaching directly out to, to companies and industries that I wanted. Um, and yeah, that's kind of what I did for 18 months. And so I had different industry concentrations over the course of the 18 months that I was looking at. And when I first started off, I would have been like, nope, I am focusing on a trades business. Like that's what, or something similar to that. Um, I thought I'd be out in the field, having a team with like a field of operations. And so uh, given kind of what my dad had been doing and <clears throat> never thought I'd be doing, I thought I'd done my last accounting, uh, last billable hour. Uh, once I left PwC <laughs> and uh, spent a year, was all like, I would occasionally see accounting things pop up and be like, nope, I'm not doing that. I don't, I don't want to do it. But then as you are in the ETA world, you're like, man, a lot of these companies could really use a little help on their accounting side. Um, and like when I got, was being truly honest with myself, it was like, did I not like accounting or did I not like the idea of like who I was helping? And so we would often work with huge private equity funds and like, it's great helping them make an extra billion, but it was always way more rewarding helping the smaller businesses because that actually had a much more tangible benefit, I felt like. And so then when I started looking at, so then finally like looked at a serious, actually, I think it was from one of the podcasts from somebody on here, Patrick Dichter mm-hmm. was like, he yeah. was like, he had acquired a county business. And I'm like, ah, okay, fine. I'll look, I'll start looking more seriously at it. And uh, he, he, and cause partly he makes a great argument for why they're so appealing. I mean, there's, there's so much to like, which we're going to hear about. Yeah. And I mean, I think on here on this podcast, he literally was like, yeah, if I was an accountant, I would buy one. If I was an accountant, I would just start one up. And I was like, okay, interesting, interesting idea. Um, and so then started looking more and more at accounting and it was like, okay, these are, uh, these check a lot of the boxes that you'd be looking for. And it's like, if I actually do want to be helping the local mom and pop business, helping local business owners have much more, a tangible benefit. It's not always helping these billion dollar funds. It's like, that seems pretty compelling. Like that's, that's what I want to be doing. And so towards the end of my 18 months, I was almost exclusively just looking for accounting firms. And so, um, was very picky, actually went up against Patrick on, on a couple deals. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And so finally accounting firms basically during tax season, there's not much, the market kind of dries up completely. At this point, I was pretty convinced that like I, accounting is what makes a ton of sense for me. Um, and so about January of last year, I just basically abandoned my search and was only looking at accounting firms, but and spent 90% of my time just trying to start an accounting practice from scratch. And so- Wait, wait, wait hold on, Michael. So you're, you start an accounting practice from scratch and you're searching for accounting firms at the same time. Yeah. So, so you don't abandon your search. You you, you just narrow it super down. Yeah. To just this got super specific where I was like, only looking at accounting practices, only looking at accounting practices that have, that look like this. And so I basically was only talking to accounting brokers, only knew I was interested if it had X, Y, and Z. And so like 
the search process was very easy then because it would like as things would come across it take me two seconds to be like yes or no um and all and that would that was probably five or ten percent of my time the other 90 95 percent was all just building a client base doing um outsource accounting for for small businesses and with the intention of what to earn money in the meantime to get yourself in the game so well, that you can in, you can you can present that you're already you already already have a practice or what what was the end game with yeah i mean i think the idea up? was start something and then grow it and see where it goes from there <laughs> like open to acquisitions along the way if they made sense um but just start something because i felt like the opportunity was too big in kind of the small business accounting world to pass up and so just got going and i was like if an acquisition makes sense along the way we can we can look at it and so um that's where so we started in january uh spent three or four months where basically it was me and then like i'd have a few like outsourced bookkeepers um that i have helping me um like closed books um for clients and so it was i mean frankly it was as any accounting owner will tell you like finding the work wasn't the problem it was figuring out how to actually get the work done was was the problem um and so again stayed in touch with patrick i've known him um now kind of for over a year year and a half and so he was like i was like hey i just started the accounting practice i'm all in like and he was like you should come to this PASBA conference and so uh this is back in Michael, let me stop you here because I, I don't want to get too far away from a couple of follow-up questions sure. I have. We'll return to PASBA in a minute. Um, but you had said you looked at a few industries, like including uh, yeah. f- home services or, or field blue-collar field-type businesses. And why would you then disqualify them? What were a couple of those? And why did you disqualify them? Quickly, just each one. Yeah, I mean, I think the... I mean, it started off like my dad's in mechanical contracting and plumbing all in the maintenance side. And so like, even before I started doing search, I was like, man, those, he was like, kind of learning more about his business. I'm like, that's an awesome business. And this is like six, seven years ago where like they just show up, do these small projects, fix whatever it is, come back every month and do it. And like, that's an awesome business. And so that's why I, of course, I feel like every searcher started off on that. Um, I spent some time poking around, uh, like I also had a healthcare background. So when I left BWC, I was mostly doing um, help, basically doing physician group rollups, and uh, so looked at that for some period of time. There was only like certain specialties that I was interested in. Um, looked at like medical equipment maintenance service companies. Looked at like residential. That seems like a, a good business. Nice recurring, yeah, crucial. So it was growing, yeah. growing big tailwinds with healthcare. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, there's some huge players in it. Um, mm. I mean, I, I would still be open to it, but I, I feel like it was going to be, it was hard as I learned more about it. It was, it was like it was going to be pretty hard to grow to like actually get your foot in the door to actually talk to the right person to actually get that mm. service contract. Because a lot of times it's hooked, like that's all kind of established on the front end. So I was like, it didn't seem like an or, a great organic growth play. I didn't necessarily have want to bring in investors to make it kind of an inorganic growth play. Um, and so was open to it, but it wasn't, didn't become a focus point. Um, okay. And then uh, another thing is like, I, you would see sometimes in like this industry and other ones I looked at, at first I get all discouraged because I'm like, oh, I see private equity in this, in this space. Like there's not gonna be anything to buy then. But that also was a pretty good telltale that like, okay, you are looking at halfway decent businesses then because if they're, if, if somebody's, some private equity is doing a roll up in that world, like that tells you somebody else is, agrees with your thesis. Exactly. Um, so also looked at like um, association management. So like 
community associations, like they they have outsourced providers that like will manage the, the board meetings and all that stuff. And so looked at, this is a kind of one I had come across in my PTBC days and it was like, great monthly recurring, you're showing up, it's all kind of a um, consistent service month to month and you're just helping the board, like a volunteer board make decisions. And so really like that, poked around on that, also private equity world and private equity in that. Um, and so those are kind of a few of the other industries that spent some time mm-hmm. poking around. And why did you go, why did you do an industry focused search or like tackle industries as opposed to just being completely agnostic? I, I, I wouldn't say I was industry focused. Um, I think there were certain geographies my, like my wife and I wanted to be in like, and so the, and so would search in those geographies. And I think you have to be in a little bit open to industries. There was like three or four that I would never touch. But other than that, if there was something that fit the right size, like I would look at it. Um, and then there was, th- then at the same angle would also have kind of a cross section view of like, okay, these are industries that I know that I really like. And so I would go find ways to make sure I knew all the companies in that industry within the geographies that I wanted. What geographies did you want? Um, so, I mean, would tell folks it was basically from Philadelphia to the Carolinas on the East Coast is where we're looking. And then my wife and I also have family um, in Kentucky, so kind of around there too, so... And just tell us a little bit more about starting up the practice. So it was initially going to be, I assume you just started with bookkeeping and that's kind of the, that's kind of the toehold. And then you maybe upsell from there on a client by client basis. It's also the, the most kind of the, the, the lowest, frankly, lowest value, easiest to deliver yeah. uh, service. Um, so I, I did that and then did the other way too of like, Hey, I can, and so the, during my search, I did some consulting on the side. And so like, would there would occasionally be folks who were like, hey, I'm looking at this deal. Can you give me whatever? Can you look at this and help me like do a, a semi QOV for it? And so like a semi, and like, so I would do like, there was also existing companies like, hey, we want to know how much we're making here or there. And so a fractional CFO type service. And so I did that as well um, of like a fractional CFO to hold and like would literally go on like Upwork and find stuff like that. Um, and then also would then be like, Hey, I've got a team who can also handle the bookkeeping. If you're looking for us to kind of stay involved from here. And so that model seemed to make a lot of sense to me of like, Hey, you're getting a little bit of kind of CFO time, but then we're also then handling all the books. So you're kind of staying engaged. We're staying engaged with you. We know what's going on and kind of help provide direction as you go. So that was kind of what originally what it looked like. And I think the other thing I'll say is like, personally, like around this time when I was doing it, like. I was, it was hard. Like I was struggling because I had just failed at search. Like I had just quit, quit search basically and was doing this. Um, I think I was excited by the opportunity, but I think that was one thing I wanted to say. It was like, you see on Twitter or conferences or what have you, like you see the success side, like there's a lot of really smart people and ro- that don't always get that. Like it has a lot of luck that happens with it. And so that was one thing that I really struggled with because like, I hate failing and like was failing very, very publicly with family and friends. And like, I got to the point where like where I hated going to family events because everyone would like, it was always some kind of like, uh, everyone wanted to know what was going on. Cause it was such a weird thing of, that I was doing. They're like, wait, so you're buying a business? Like, how's it going? And like, I hated going to family events because everyone yeah. always wanted to ask. And so that was, that was something that like, I just wanted to throw out there. Like I never really thought about, but it was tough going through it. That's a such a great point. I'm surprised I haven't heard it before. I don't think I have that. Yeah, when you tell, yeah, it's like it's like 
a lot of things probably in life when you try something and it's a bit of a project and there's a lot of uncertainty and it could be a multi-year effort and you your family hears about it. Every single family gathering means you're gonna you're gonna get the interrogation. Your family probably means well. I mean, that, you know, they're just asking what's going on. But yeah. if you've been hitting kind of hurdle after failure after face plant, uh, it can be quite draining and demoralizing to have to constantly deliver bad news to your family. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that was again kind of knowing self going into it. Like I didn't realize that I'd always kind of steered towards like very high probability things. That I feel like I was going to succeed at, and so this jumping into search was something that I knew like this is not high probability of success, but I'm jumping in, and so I'm if it doesn't go the way I want it to go, like am I going to be able to handle it? And so that was yeah, I definitely didn't pay as much attention to that on the front end as I probably should have. But and and so wait, are you also saying though that you started the practice for your ego, just so you could Maybe, you yeah. could show your, totally yourself honest. in yeah. the world that there to was totally some honest. progress going on? Yeah, to be totally honest, yeah. there was that yeah. would, that would not be a non-zero percentage of it yeah well no no shame in that man you don't have to be you don't have to be honest about it uh we, we're all doing things for our ego all the time i know i am um okay and and just one other thing you 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 said and reinforced and i'm going to reinforce again the you saw that the opportunity in small business accounting was just too big and you and how you said like everybody who's in this space will have said that and indeed patrick dichter and Gretchen Roberts, who was on a few weeks ago, all have said that indeed, like it's shooting fish in a barrel. It's not. It's not getting clients. It's servicing them. That's that's the challenge of this particular business. But just um, just to elaborate on that. What, what? Why? Why is there such a supply demand mismatch? And then secondly, why is it so hard to del to deliver good service? Yeah, I mean, it's it is a supply of accountants problem, right? Like the demand. Demand for accounting services isn't really like that's okay. It's growing GDP-ish probably, um, maybe a little bit more depending on size and that kind of thing. But the supply of accounting services is definitely going. Like you can look at any kind of industry report and like there's less people going into accounting every single year. Um, now, if there's a recession, like accounting does go up then. But they're like the supply side of the people providing the service is going down, and so a lot of these big firms are sucking up everybody that goes into uh, accounting. Um, and that leaves like the local accountants, the medium-sized accountants, like really find it, it's really hard for them to find people or, or much less quality kind of team. And so that's why accounting is the services for small business. Just they're stretched way too thin. Like they've got 10, they've got 10 different things. They got to answer like every second. And like they, 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 they can't be proactive because they have too, too much, uh, demanded of their time. And so. Yeah. That's that's kind of what drew me in. Now, now that you can, we can talk about, okay, is AI coming? Is technology coming? Is all of that coming? And like, it is. Um, and I think that's a whole separate conversation of like, is that good, bad, or indifferent to the accounting profession? But um, that's yeah. all certainly coming as well. Fascinating. And is the answer, I, this is, I think, the answer that Patrick gave me in his second interview, might have been Chris Williams, as to why fewer people are drawn to accounting because STEM jobs, programming jobs are peeling them off, basically. Peeling yeah. off people who otherwise would have gone into accounting in a previous era, sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. One other thing that I know from the pre-call, which you haven't mentioned here, is that you su actually submitted three, o uh, three LOIs over your 18-month <laughs> search. <laughs> can, can, yeah. Is there anything to say about those? Yeah, I mean, the I was probably literally 
two days from moving to uh, somewhere around DC uh, about seven months into my search. We, I had a sign, a purchase agreement in my inbox that I was getting ready to sign and the deal fell apart. And so spent like three or four months getting that to the finish line um, and fell apart. And so that was really hard. Like it was uh, <clears throat> looking back on it, like it's fortunate it didn't happen. Um, it was a whole second set of books and all of that. But um, yeah, I mean, it's hard if you like find something, spend a lot of time on it and it dies like right at the last second. And that was one of, and then there were two other LOIs. How far did those get? So the other one, uh, second one died in diligence. Um, it kind of came clear to me that his, the owner's relationship was too close with the clients and I was, there would be churn that happened as a result of that. And like, Yep, you can build that into a mechanism, but it was just like I didn't want to have to fight that pain and deal with all that. Yeah. And so, yeah. um, and I would I would say it was it did help like having done diligence for ten years before this. Like there was probably two or three dozen deals that like I was able I feel like I was able to kill that I really liked, but I was able to kill because I found something. And I'm like, yeah, we can't do this because of that. And now everyone does that, but I would say it was like okay, if you're thinking about like, hey, what do you bring to the table as searcher going into it? That was one of the things that was one of the strengths that I had that was really fortunate. Now, I didn't have sales background. I didn't have uh, like a ton of operating jobs, but that was like, that was one thing that I could lean on. And so that like, that was beneficial for me to kind of lean into that um, yeah. during search. And so I guess message being that like, again, just being honest with yourself and knowing kind of what your strengths are and just lean into that as you're going through the search process. Yeah, that's a good call out. Do you happen to remember one or two? Uh, instances where you caught something that maybe uh, somebody who's less experienced with due diligence uh, might not have caught it? Yeah, I mean, that was, it was, I think people have asked me this now and like, hey, if I'm looking at something kind of as I'm doing an LOI or like right afterwards, like what should I be looking at? And it's like, the two things I tell them is like, just look at the balance sheet. Does anything look weird in the balance sheet? Uh, and just pay attention to the margins. Like look at margins over a handful of years and make sure that like if they're somewhat consistent and if they're not, if it's popping up in your year that the deal is happening, like it's probably not going to be sustainable. And so mm -hmm. we could, like all the time would have very sophisticated private equity clients. Those two things they wouldn't have looked at or thought about. And like deals would die uh, at some point down the road because of that. Now, not every time does that the deal dies because of that, but those are two areas where like just go in with eyes wide open on them. If that, if that's what you're seeing. Okay. And so let me uh, indulge me to just kind of restate that. Probably everybody listening to this knows that if revenue has soared year before sale, that's that's a pretty obvious like, wait, what's going on here? That, that timing seems too good. Is this really sustainable? So that one, we, 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 that one's more obvious. But also margins. You're saying look at margins in particular, not just uh, not just revenue. Um, yeah. And if I mean, margins again, too have... Mm -hmm. Yeah, a pretty straightforward thing, but like a lot of times the accounting may not be caught up in the year you're looking at. And so like they just haven't recorded costs or whatever reason, or like something's weird how they're recording costs that year. And okay. so it's going to look like the profit percentage has gone up and it may be sustainable. It may be, uh, but right. often I feel like it's not. And so those are the yeah. two things that now there's a lot of nuances that probably happened along the way where I like killed it later. But those are the two things that like often killed it early on. And so we're just about back to get, to get back to PASBA here, pick up the plot, but <laughs> the, the, uh, when you are building up this client base, 
uh, for that you, with a zero your zero to one accounting practice and bookkeeping <laughs> practice. <laughs> uh, two questions. First, I guess I already know the answer to this question, but I'll ask it anyway. You were finding that you this the suit fit. You could imagine yeah. owning a firm like this. This this was a fit. You like you liked the work enough to continue on. Exactly. Exactly. And it yeah. also, I mean, the first bet, like I was doing, like one of the first clients was a, <laughs> was a church and they had this like whole paper process where they did everything. And so it was like great for me to get in the middle of that and see like, okay, no. And here's exactly the technology we can use to solve this. Here's the software we can do to do this. It's great to know that you're familiar with those technologies and softwares, but if you actually understand the process and like how it all works and like what they're actually trying to solve when you've seen it kind of firsthand and like been the one like, nope, this is how we staple the checks together. Like, nope, this is where the paperclip goes. It like you, it, I don't know, for me, it made a lot of sense. Like that's kind of how I learn and that's how I go is like, okay, let me understand the very nitty gritty. And then, okay, now let's, now let's run with it. And so that was a good experience for me again, maybe just because at PwC days, like your work, you're never in that kind of level of granularity. You're working with super sky high numbers and that kind of stuff. Like you're never actually in the details of like financial operations and like how should things be set up as much. And so yeah. this kind of really got me to see like the very basics. And so, um, yeah, it was it was good for me in that in that sense. Well, here, I mean, if you're literally talking about envelope, um, staple and paperclip placement. You're also seeing. You're, first of all, you're also doing. You're, you're physically on site, which you probably weren't when you're. You know, most yeah. accounting and bookkeeping is is more and more and more and more virtual. Um, so that, but also you're seeing where kind of financial management and like physical operations intersect. It's like yeah. like how the paper is pushed <laughs> in a small business has knock on effects in terms of like how you know the accounting is run. Yeah, I mean it's helped because like literally just yesterday was on a call the prospect and like their their approval process for invoices is like everyone in the organization has to reply to an email and then like someone has to print to download the invoice and like then print it and mail it and it was like okay no like here's the software we're going to use that's going to solve this here's exactly how this all works the same functionality is going to be in this software and like just help talk them through and it's like yes i could have done that without that experience but it, it just gave me the account like my, me personally like i needed to like have actually seen it to talk through it and so yeah um yeah but yeah, it's, 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 Great. again, it's also wild just seeing like there's some clients that come to us and it's like very sophisticated. They have all these automations. There's other clients who are like, nope, this is where the paperclip goes on these invoices. <laughs> Great. And the other question was going to be, Michael, what, how much MRR or ARR did you grow this, this nascent practice to? Yeah. So, I mean, it was like, I got to 10,000 in like the first month. Um, and really? then. Yeah, <laughs> like M MRR, like 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 recurring or project work. No, like ten thousand of like monthly fees. Wow, not bad. Um, so that's when I was like, okay, there's something here. <laughs> you and Patrick Dichter have connected, and he says you should go to this PASBA thing. What is PASBA, and what happens when you get there? So PASBA is like a, um, basically an industry association for accountants that's telling small business accountants to be business owners and not technicians. And so, I mean, you hear it said about a lot of the ETA type industries of like a technician founds their own company. They then can only get it to a certain size because they want to be the technician. Like it's the same thing's true for accountants. Like a lot of the small accountants, like they want to be the ones putting the numbers in the tax return. They want to be the ones like 
seeing the payroll and all that kind of stuff. They don't focus on being a business owner and creating processes and having people kind of fill the different roles. And so that's what Pazla is all about was like helping accountants step out of that technician role and become an owner. And so, mm-hmm. uh, which, I mean, you hear all the time in like ETA world of like, that's kind of the mentality you need to have. Yep. And so I was like, okay, if I'm starting something and I'm like, I'm now the one putting the paper clips on these invoices, I need to get out of this <laughs> and uh, go have that mindset. And so, uh, yeah, so go to the conference and Patrick meet see Patrick there. Some somebody in his like immediate peer group um, <clears throat> was like, "Hey, I'm trying to get out of my practice. I need to figure out my exit plan." And like we're at the bar, and I'm like, "I'll buy your practice." And because I know I knew passive firms were like the kind of firms that I wanted. Like they're much more mo- built around uh, not just year end tax work. They're built around like, "Hey, we're in your books, closing your books every month. We are doing your bookkeeping." Some of them have layered in like fractional CFO, but like, "Hey, we have like a." We're in there. We're in constant communication with you throughout the year. And then, oh, by the way, yeah, we also do your tax. And so, like, that was the model that I really wanted to be building towards. And so, I knew and, once and, someone there. So, to, to be clear, Michael, so so what we're saying here, too, is that the PASBA model is is basically a recurring revenue model as opposed to a lot of accounting engagements where it's like there's a big, there's a big spend uh, with the client during tax time. They pay you to do the taxes. And then there's a trickle of spend over the year, yeah. if anything. And this is more like, no, let's have a recurring relationship. Um, so it makes it a recurring revenue business, which is pr- pretty interesting. Um, and, and just to emphasize your point here, like, yeah, if you're going to go fishing to buy an accounting firm, PASBA seems the place to do it. I mean, because they're basically, they've got a superior <laughs> model and everybody who's there is by definition, a subscriber to this model. They're probably at different levels of implementation of, of the model. Um, but they're going to be the, the high quality that you want. I guess you could make the counter argument that may, maybe the opportunity is to not go to a PAS, you know, find, to, to find a non-PASBA practice and then PASBA eyes it yep. <laughs> and then unlock a lot of value that way. But anyway. I mean, there's, there's <laughs> you, you see people there that are doing both. And like, that's something like there's owners in PASBA that are, they will buy heavy tax practices and then kind of pull them in and try and make them PASified. Because um, yeah. in theory, there's a lot of revenue synergy there. But yeah, um, so go there. Patrick introduced me to someone in his peer group and he's like, I want to sell. And I'm like, I'll buy it. And then uh, <laughs> three months later we closed. And so there was no broker involved. It was just the two of us. And uh, it happened to be in like the DC area, which is where my wife and I wanted to be. Um, and it, it, again, like I feel like other thing like I learned was the business is half of it. Like you can do all the things you want to do to try and make sure that it's a good business. But like I found a phenomenal seller and that has made it, so much easier like um so yeah i got very lucky there and that's um kind of a wild card you don't can't always uh diligence as well i feel like when his name is david the seller david when yep. david says i want to se- i need to get out of my practice i want to sell it and and you're like i'll buy it <laughs> on the one on the one hand i was like i was like i bet he was like no really and you were like no really yeah <laughs> he's like no really exactly <laughs> but, but, but then I'm like, I bet a lot of people at PASBA are acquisitive. I mean, Patrick Dichter is acquisitive. Yeah. And so I, I imagine actually that you weren't the only one raising your hand to be like, well, I'll buy it. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it, honestly, it went back to like a classic ETA story of like, he had been, David and thinking about selling. He didn't really want to sell. Like there had been regional or like DC, large DC firms that approached him of like, hey, we really want to bring in this monthly accounting service to our firm like can we bring you in you'll run this for us and so i think but he was like no i want to keep 
Bay Business Group intact. I want it to be still be Bay Business Group. I don't want to lose the culture. I want to make sure that people are treated well. And so when that then appealed to him, and so versus if it's another owner, even if it was another Pasmo owner, I think he was kind of like, I don't know, because then it's just going to be absorbed into whatever the other organization is. And so the fact that it could still be a business group, still be the same organization. And then I think he trusted um, my brother and I, he, my, my brother also came in um, as a partner. And so he trusted both of us that like, hey, no, I think these guys aren't, are going to continue to treat people well, are going to be focused on the culture. Like that kind of pushed him over the edge. So therefore he, your practice such as it was, he, you had to explain to him, wasn't like this big practice that was going to absorb no, his yeah. business. It was going to be the other way around. His, yeah, his was business like, was going to absorb your 10K yeah, a month. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's that's great. And we're going to hear about the business in just a, just a second here. But your brother, I, this you did not, I don't think, mention on the pre-call. So what's your brother's role here? So my brother, um, <laughs> same exact background as me. Um, CPA, went and worked for a big four firm, did diligence for 10 years, got to like where he was on the doorstep of a partner. And like right around the doorstep time that I had was decided to leave and go start my own firm. And I was like, why you just jump into this with me um, and we'll build something. We, we do everything together on lockstep yeah, anyway. Exactly, exactly. I was <laughs> let's, like, not break, let's not break the pattern. I was like, and like he was struggling with the same things of like, do I really want to be part of a big organization forever. I want to make sure I can prioritize my family and do the things I want to do, but also feel like it's still rewarding and what I want to be doing when I am at work. Yeah. And so we kind of aligned on all that. And uh, I knew kind of going in, like you hear like, it's great to do it alone. Partner searches can go, a couple can go very bad or they can go very well. And I think it's something where it's like someone I've known forever, someone I trust, someone who I know is like always on my back. And so it was like, this it seems like a pretty easy decision to, to jump in with. And yeah. so once um, he was kind of circling, like waiting to jump into the company that I'd started. And then he joined as soon as, uh, as soon as we closed on Bay Business Group. Wow. Uh, and are you guys co-equal partners? We are not. Um, okay. I think the goal, we'll, we'll, we'll see where we get with that. Um, I think it was, we were at different spots kind of going in with our families and careers. And so, um, yeah. but yeah. And you found the deal, Michael. You did the search <laughs> and you found the deal. <laughs> Let's be real. <laughs> yeah. That was, I mean, uh, I don't think he really realized everything that went into it because we were, we then had dinner with a searcher the other night and the searcher was like, they're mid-search right now and they're just like, they've gone past the honeymoon phase and we're like, this, this, yeah. this is not the best. And Matthew's like, I don't think I realized it was like this. I'm like, yeah, I spared you all this. Uh, my, yeah. my, my long face at all the family gatherings <laughs> didn't tell you like what, what, my one word response to how search is going didn't yeah. clue you in that. Uh, yeah. And is he also based here in the DC area no, so he was, for he, the audience? Michael, you're sitting about two miles from, from my house. So we're, <laughs> we're practically neighbors. Is he, where is he? He's, he, he moved to Northern Virginia as well. He, he literally is, he's in Falls Church right across the street from the office. Okay. So let's hear more about David's business that you bought. Bay Business Group. And it's the Chesapeake Bay, not uh, the San Francisco Bay. Um, it's a question we yep. get quite a bit. Um, but yeah, so it's, we have 35 people, about 20 of them in Northern Virginia, the rest all remote. And um I think David was, his background was also big four accounting, then left and started his own practice. And so we kind of had very similar backgrounds, but he also had a technology background. So he was pretty, the firm has been 
very out of the curve kind of technology wise versus others. And so like he had people working remote, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago. And so, um, but yeah, the firm today is 35 people. Um, it's, we've focused on, we've kind of three segments, defense contractors, nonprofits, and then local businesses. Um, and about 80% of the business is monthly accounting where we're acting as your outsourced accounting department. We're doing the bookkeeping, we're doing your bill pay, we're doing your invoicing, and then we're kind of your controller, fractional CFO overseeing it all and kind of telling you kind of your, your, your financial partner. Defense and nonprofit, obviously, he, he strategically went after the, the big local markets in the DC yeah. area. Those yeah, are two it, big it's, ones. It's, it's also too where it's like the accounting's a little more nuanced. Um, like defense contractors have to have their books kept a certain way. Um, and then nonprofits have to have their books kept a certain way based on the grants and kind of where their funding sources are coming from. So it was like, he was very strategic and like, okay, we can double down on these niches and, and do well. Um, and then, so then when somebody else comes in and they're not one of those, it's like, yeah, we can handle that. No problem. And do you think in general, I, I actually am not sure that my other guests who have bought practices are, had such strong niche focus. I know Patrick Dichter did for a while. So Patrick, don't get mad if, if you still do it. I'm, I'm misspeaking here. Um, <laughs> uh, and same with Chris. Anyway, is this a common practice within accounting practices that they choose a niche or two and or three? And and if not, is this a best practice? Is this what PASBA, for example, preaches? I think there's certain parts of PASBA that would tell you to do that. Um, I think that is kind of a newer accounting owner mindset is like, okay, yeah, let's focus on niches. Because like, if you're trying to think about scalability and like pattern recognition for your team, it's a lot easier if they're seeing the same thing, they can become experts faster. Um, you then provide a better service to your clients, um, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, it makes perfect sense. Sure. And the, now let's just talk a little bit about fractional CFO as well as a yeah. service that you're offering. <laughs> uh, Gretchen Roberts, who, who I already mentioned, who was on a few weeks ago, um, it sees that as an opportunity for her business to take it in that direction. Our virtual CFO, I don't think she, is yet offering it, but uh, but wants to. So the, the point there is is kind of what you've already said, which is that it's more of like a financial partner. You're not just running the books, but you're providing consulting, guidance, direction uh, for the for your client business. Just, t just tell us more. Flesh that out a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it, it can take a lot of different forms. I think for some of our nonprofits, it's like helping them think through like their annual budgets, helping them think through uh, like their funding sources and kind of what they should be doing there. Um, for some of our government contractors, it's helping them as they're looking at different types of work, like what could this translate to you for your books now? Um, I think it's, uh, candidly, it's a smaller piece of what we're doing now. Like I'll characterize much more of it as like more controller type where it's like, hey, your books are done. Here's what it says. Here's the results. I think it's only for certain clients where we're kind of going above and beyond and doing like looking forward kind of thing, which is what I would say most of the fractional CFO is. And I think it's helpful, like right now we're having, like for the, our fractional CFO clients, we're having conversations about, hey, what are your goals for 2024? What do you want to do? How do we help you do that? And because a lot of times the small business owner with their accountant, it's like, they're just going through the expenses and being like, how do I get rid of this cost? How do I get rid of this cost? How do I get rid yeah. of this cost? And yeah. it's like, yeah, well, yep, you can make more money if you do that, but your time is going to be better spent if we figure out how to help you grow the top line or help you improve the margins. Um, and so that's kind of really where it, it's coming from. 
I think well, the thing we, you, there's other, I'd say there's different tiers of fractional CFO. There's some who are great and like they really will help you get financing. They'll help you like for a VC, like help you with a cap table. They'll help you uh, negotiate kind of terms. Like that's kind of a bit, I'd say above kind of what we're doing now, but um, I think we'd love to get there at some point. I see fractional CFO, virtual CFO kind of as an offering out there. Yeah. Maybe I'm just late to it, but I, I mean, I see people on the social networks offering it. Uh, you'll see it on Upwork. Yeah, I mean, that's probably how you self-described when you were uh, building your book of business on Upwork. Is this something I'm curious that that is being pulled by SMB owners? Is, is, this, is this concept being pulled out of you guys? Or is this something that the industry has created as a way to upsell I don't I don't mean to sound so cynical but kind of like to upsell and and offer clients like what's driving this which side of the table is driving yeah. this for trend candidly for us it's been more reactive it's been like hey this like this client is trying to figure out where to invest the money in their business they want to understand like the profitability of their different divisions and like where they should then be allocating the money in so like that to me is more like the client pulled us in that's kind of fractional CFO type work that was all reactionary that wasn't really us pushing it um mm -hmm. I think there is an opportunity for us to kind of highlight that more of for our clients where we're not doing that as much. Like, hey, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Like, and push it more. But for us, it's kind of been all reactionary. I think there's definitely firms that are pushing and like, I think that the demand is there. Like a business, small business owner is lonely. And like, if you can help that person think through their problems, whether it's financial or otherwise, like that you're going to be uh, someone who's in their corner and a value add. Well, and, and also you, you just hear in my seat talking to so many searchers and just in, in SMB land generally that that there's really um, a lack of understanding around this stuff and it's harder than it seems. So the classic example would be working capital, that even people who think they understand working capital don't. <laughs> it's, it's actually quite subtle. Very smart, capable people get into their SMB in the, in the first year and get bitten in the butt by working capital <laughs> miscalculations. Like it ain't it ain't as straightforward as it seems. Um, and you know the, the three the three documents the three big documents cash flow P and L and balance sheet. What is it like? Like t most people are familiar with one or two of those, but not the third. Like the yeah. th what, how, what is that one again? How does that go? See, but case in point, I can't even tell you. Yeah, no, I mean, people usually are like, if you ask for, if you mention cash flow, like people have heard the term before, but I feel like rarely actually understand what it is or like, it's like, well, it's just the cash you made. They're like, okay, but I don't quite get it. And so to your point about networking capital, I had a client last week who was there going back and forth with a potential buyer and like how they were thinking about networking capital i was like man you're <laughs> you can do that but you're not gonna have any cash the buyers aren't gonna have any cash for the first six weeks because of this and they're like no i'm like okay fine i trust me i'm like and they walked him through it and they're like oh wow i didn't even think about this and it was like because they didn't under like they understood networking capital as like current assets minus current liabilities but they didn't actually understand how it translated to like cash coming in their door over a certain period of time so yeah um yeah i mean that's that's like we're happy to help, and that's kind of part of that that service there. Okay, let's hear a little bit more about uh, the business and then the deal itself, and then we'll start uh, wrapping up here. So the business, you said 35 people, 20 Northern Virginia, 10, 10 remote, uh, five in India. Not sure you said that, but I know from uh, offline. And then you, the, the remoteness, the 10 or 15 who are remote, is that how, I guess, 
the previous owner, really, um, how did he decide that 15 would be remote and 20 would be in the office? And how are you going to carry forward that pattern? Yeah, so it, it, everyone else who's re- remote uh, all started in Northern Virginia. And so they're basically all military or like State Department spouses who were looking for a job. And then they got their spouse got transferred and they're like, and David, the owner was like, why don't you just keep working and just be remote? And so that's how everyone else is remote, basically. Um, there's been a few people that have been hired directly remote. Um, and I think that's something like we're open to. Um, I think it's pretty, it's night and day difference, the kind of caliber of people we see, like applicants, if it's, if we're just, if we're restricted to only Northern Virginia versus if we're open to somebody remote. Um, and so I think just from a talent perspective, like we have to be open to remote because it's, there's only so many quality accountants and bookkeepers just within a 20 mile radius of Falls Church. Um, and so that's, that's, that's why we've done it. I think we'd like for people to be here. Like we have got different ways to try and keep people engaged. Um, none of them perfect, but that's all, uh, yeah, that's, that's, it's more of a product of kind of the types of employees that we've had of, of why the current remote versus in person. Yeah. Well, Michael, I, I hope you, you got a plan here because, um, you're sitting now as owner of a, of a business, which is just classically, you know, I feel like the employees, if they wanted to be remote, they can make a strong case for it. I mean, this is, this is something where, um, I just feel like accounting and, and bookkeeping and CFO work is, is something that can be done remotely. And so the employees are going to want that. Even right now, like our, it's, we're not strictly in the office. The people who are coming in the office are because they, they want kind of a chance to step away from home and it's not too inconvenient. Like, so we've been, again, like, I think our menta- David's mentality, our mentality has been like, hey, your stuff gets done. I don't really care when or where it happens. Just get the stuff done. Okay, 35 people. I don't. Did you say the revenue? Yes, yeah, so it was a little over 4 million revenue. Is that a large practice in the scheme of accounting practices? 4.3 million in, in billings and 35 people? I mean, I would say it was on the, it was large for a one owner practice. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the ones that are bigger are all going to have multiple partners um, and kind of be like the other thing we, which we didn't really talk about a ton, but like the PASA model, most accounting firm model is like, a pyramid, the partners at the top, the partner is the one who drives kind of the sales and business development. Whereas the passive firms are like that sales and business development role isn't the partner. There's a separate function that's just sales and business development where the partner then is more of a owner, CEO type. And so um, most accounting firms are structured classically, like how big four are, how everybody else is, where the partner sits at the top and they're doing the sales and business development. So for firms that I've seen where... Uh, like that model, like the PASMA model, like it is, it was in the bigger top quartile, I would say. And I assume with the PASMA model that what you're like, basically growth of any business, you are trading margin for size. Because if if the PASMA model means hiring a dedicated salesperson and a dedicated marketing person and, you know, basically standing up these functions, which are often just on the shoulders of the partner, that's more cost. Uh, so that eats into the margin. But the flip side, of course, is that you get to grow a bigger business and, and a, a true business rather than a practice that's just led by the partner. Yeah. Uh, first of all, so far, so good. Yeah. And I think that that's also why a lot of practices like going on, like early on, it was easy for me to filter out because it's like, yep, they have 60 or 70% SDE, but it's like they're missing a <laughs> huge cost of the actual owner, like technician who's doing all the work. And so that's why, like, then if you put that cost in, like the multiple looks drastically different almost every time. And so it's harder to make 
any of the numbers work that way. Um, and so that's why, like, I really had, it felt like it had to be a bigger size for it to like make the numbers work. Yeah. That was something that Gretchen mentioned, uh, that, that a lot of these businesses that come for sale, these practices that come for sale at first blush have phenomenal margins, but it's because the partner's doing all the work basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The partner's uh, working 3,500 hours a year and like, yeah, it's going to take you two people or three people to replace that. And the business, these businesses are sold as a, as a multiple of revenue, not SDE. For, what, for whatever uh, reason. Yes. Yes. Uh, I don't know why, but that's, that's why. I mean, you, it makes more sense if it's like high growth, like you're not really investing in margin, like you're not really focused on profitability, but for these, like I don't know why, business. But yeah, that, okay. I understand revenue multiples then, but here it's not like, it's not like we're growing at 200% a year. And, but yeah, either way that, that they trade on revenue. Yeah. Well, what, what, are, what is the multiple of revenue that you paid if you would? Um, I would say it was above market. Um, the market is usually like everyone, the classic example of like accounting firms have traded for a long time, um, is, is one, one times is usually what you hear. If they're brokered at all, they're usually going to be above that. The ones that trade off market usually are going to be less than that, I would say. Um, and then you can hear them going for like above two, um, in certain cases, I'd say most of the time they're in that one, two, one, two range is like, I'd say the middle of the ones that are brokered. Any more terms you can share with us? SBA, what, what, what did that look like? Um, so yeah, it was SBA, um, used one of the common folks around the, one of the lenders that are very all over the ETA world. Um, and, uh, yeah. Feel free I mean, to name them if you'd like. Yeah, I mean, use use Live Oak, um, and it, we, it went like there were some bumps, but we got there. We like literally like David and I met for the first time, and then we closed the deal ninety days later. Um, and so it was uh, every it all all of the providers in the in the world all kind of helped us. They that were in the world of the deal all helped us kind of get that to the finish line in a pretty pretty tight timeline. And anything more to say about the deal? Sounds like it was pretty clean. Um, yeah, it was pretty clean. Like we, we, it wasn't, that was kind of part of my, like I knew it was a great business. I knew I really wanted it. And I was like, I'm not going to complicate this with like super complicated deal structure. Um, like the priority was like, let's just, if this is a great thing, like let's get it to the finish line. Like that was kind of the priority I had. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, right or wrong, but that was, that was how I went about it. Well, going back to your misery while you were searching unsuccessfully for 18 months and kind of you underestimated how hard that would be and and how much you know that of course luck plays a role all of a sudden you find this great pra seemingly great practice sizable practice in the geography where you really wanted to live like yeah you wouldn't want to let that slip through your fingers for all the lack of good luck that you'd experienced before like this was a stroke of great yeah i mean like it was not even it's off the charts luck that this all happened so uh i will completely agree and and you guys were you guys weren't yet in Northern Virginia or the DC area. No, you we wanted were, to move here. You were where? I, I, so the, we had actually moved during my search. We moved from Chicago to Minneapolis. My wife kind of got a dream job that had potential to be remote, um, and so it was like, well, we don't want to be in Chicago long term. Why would you be commuting every week to Minneapolis? Like, why don't we just move there and then live there until we find something the areas we want to be in? And so we then once the deal closed, we moved uh with uh moved to alexandria 
the transition. Anything to say about that? When did you close, Michael? August, August 15th. August 15th. Okay. So four months ago. Carry on, please. And so, uh, yeah. So, I mean, it was, I think everybody's kind of feeling each other out, but I think it's like, we haven't had, we've reached, everybody's stuck around. Um, like we've, it's been, uh, I think if, as you're thinking about, Hey, what's this transition look like? What is bad? What is good look like? I think it's been as close to good as we, as we could have hoped. Um, so very fortunate. And anything that you have learned in your four, in your four months that you that you realize, oh, I should have diligenced that and you could help educate the audience to learn yeah, from I mean, your mistake. I think the, it was, we, we were, we were concerned about the David, like how involved is he with the clients? Like you can, you don't really, yeah. there's not a great way to kind of get your head around that and like what his relationships are. Um, and so we were concerned like, okay, if he's no longer the owner, like what happens with those? And we had, we trusted, like we had great relationship, seemed very trusting, but it's also like, it's kind of a blind leap of faith on that. Um, so that, that, that's worked out great. I think the one thing we didn't quite have a ton of, we should have, we knew, but we didn't think it was going to be as big of a deal was there was, we had, there was one manager that was very, very strong that left uh, about a year, year and a half ago. And so we had seen like, okay, she left, most of her clients all stuck around. And so we didn't really think, okay, that's okay. I think that's continued to be a pain point for us over the last four months. It's just people didn't make the decision to leave right away. It's just kind of now as you look back of like, I really miss miss her. And so that's still been kind of a point. So like we've leaned into those clients more, tried to help them, trying to make sure they're getting what they need. Um, but that's been a pain point that we thought because we looked at like, oh, she left and no one left then the next month, like we're good. It was it people's decision to leave or consider leaving was kicked on the can for a year, year and a half. Yeah. That was one thing that we had to say we'd underestimated during diligence. Yeah. Well, that, that that's a good, just to kind of abstract that for all searchers and all businesses, like, yeah, if something has happened in the business prior to your ownership, that seems like it would be damaging to the business, but wasn't, depending on how long ago it was, you, you, you should, you should factor in that maybe the domino effect is slow moving and there still, there still could be effect on, on your watch. Um, it just hasn't kind of hit yet. So don't assume you're in the clear or really, really interrogate that at least. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's, that was, yeah, I think that's a, that's a pretty good synopsis of it. The industry overall. So we already, we talked, we've talked about it a lot. We talked about PASBA and the different kind of the, the PASBA model versus traditional model, the supply shortage of accountants. Um, you touched on how, you know, AI offshoring, you know, these are things that come up again and again. We don't really have to belabor it because I've, I've talked to my other guests about it and um, there's probably not much more to say, but is there, but feel free to, or anything else about this industry that you would tell searchers who are, who are drawn to it? Yeah. I, so I think a bit different than maybe other accountants or other people that have bought accounting firms, like we're actually CPAs that came in. And so I think that can be good and bad, right? Like we don't have the outside perspective that others do, but I think looking for me of like, okay, downside risk planning, like I can step in and play a manager role if like absolutely like shit hits the fan. And so that kind of gave me comfort of being able to do like what we've done. And so just as like a thing to think about, like that was kind of my backstop. Um, the other thing is like, yes, I think technology, AI, that is all coming. I think at the core of the service and like what we really try to encourage is like, you're helping the business owner and like 
answer financial questions and so like helping them think through problems and so like ai will always be a tool to help that but like really that service of like talking to the owner and being a trusted partner is like what we're trying to get like that's what we feel like we're supposed to be doing and i think that's never going to be completely supplanted i think and frankly like today our clients are more technology sophisticated a lot of the busy work is cut out but when they have problems like you really have to understand accounting and really have to understand how like the technology talks to each other to like solve their problem because and like that skill i think is always going to be needed because like <clears throat> we have like a lot of our clients have multiple different systems that all talk to each other in different ways and i think knowing ultimately what you should be looking at and how it should be presented is like that's kind of the that that piece of knowledge is never going to completely be obsolete um so now it could look very different maybe the industry shrinks but like i don't think it completely goes <laughs> hopefully it doesn't go to zero yeah yeah well one thing that gretchen and i touched on was like sometimes i mean this could be broadened out to all of ai versus humans but i think for even if even if in 10 years 20 years the ai has achieved the level of quality of of input and advice that a, that a human can I suspect that there's going to be a lot of people who still just want to communicate with a human. I mean, just purely, they just, they just want to have another, you know, organic brain on the other side of the discussion that they're interacting with. That might just be being old fashioned and people will be talking to avatars and it'll be fine. I'm I'm, I'm certainly on this, on the same page as you on that, or at least I hope that's, that's how it plays out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you got a, a 10-year SBA loan, Michael, so <laughs> let, let's hope for the next 10 years. <laughs> hey, I didn't dig him. Um, and, and just a little bit, um, just on the, on the point you just made about your own industry background, at PwC, you've been working on giant transactions for big PE funds. That's very different than the accounting needs of small businesses. And when I had actually asked you this on the pre-call, you said, you know, my, my, my experience wasn't actually directly applicable, but... In the meantime, you started your own practice. And what I'm hearing you say is that like, it might not be directly applicable, but like there was, it was certainly much more applicable than somebody who was not a CPA at all, for example. So you did, you do see yourself that backstop, like you could get in if you absolutely had to, even though you'd be a little outside your comfort zone, you'd be way less outside your comfort zone than say a Gretchen Roberts or a Patrick Dichter. Yeah. And I mean, Patrick could maybe jump in now. I've had, uh, I won't speak to him or yeah. him or Gretchen, but yeah, yeah I think yeah. it was had been living in like a very tangential finance and numbers accounting world. And so a lot of it is still ultimately the same. Like you still want to be measuring, looking at different things, thinking through the business certain ways like that is all still applicable. I think now what software are you using? Like, did I really use QuickBooks a ton? Did I really use like build.com or ramp or like be involved in like the granularity of like processing a payroll? Like, no, but like you understand the logic of how it should all work and like what should be happening. Yeah. And so that all like, um, it was there. It just wasn't really maybe a muscle that I'd ever had to flex before or think about. Um, Great, Michael. Well, I want to just close by circling back to the top and a couple of early uh, decisions you made or thoughts that you had. First of all, decision to to you didn't want outside equity. Uh, how is that playing out? I know you're only four months in, but still, any anything to reflect back on that, or are you basically just still feel in line with how you did back then? Yeah, I mean, I think it's still in line. I think um, 
yeah, I think it was kind of like, hey, I. There's a lot of people who gave great advice. A lot of people who have been incredibly helpful, continue to be incredibly helpful. Always open to hearing other thoughts. But I kind of really just wanted to like have the last say on some stuff. Now maybe that changes at some point. I don't know, but um, that's that's kinda, yeah. I think it's still held true. Great, and the put up or shut up uh, feeling that you had when you were at PwC and and looking into all these client businesses and and you guys all saying to yourselves, man, they need to be doing this and that and the other. Uh, okay, now now you're captain of the ship. Do you feel like <laughs> early? So you're probably not making tons of decisions, but do you feel like you, what, any early signs? No, I mean, I think there's, there's uh, ideas are the easy part and the like strategy is usually the easy part. It's like the execution and like implementation. That's the hard part, I think. You hear that, you see that uh, from the outside, but actually being in the middle of it is it's, it's certainly holds true. And what, why? What's what's hard about execution? Just getting everybody on, rowing in the same direction, sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, it, like David had set up a great firm. We have a great firm. There's just things just around the edges. Just like, hey, we just want to twist, twist this or twist that, and it's like just even doing the twisting has still been hard. I think so. Like a classic one is like. Half of our clients are on QuickBooks Desktop. Half of them on QuickBooks Online. Desktop is going away. We need to get our clients who are on Desktop onto QuickBooks Online. We've had accountants who've only used QuickBooks Desktop for the last fifteen years. So just the change, like from the outside, it's like, yep, of course, like we need to move all of our clients. But then on the inside of like helping our accountants understand how to get the clients over, help them feel confident yeah. with a very similar but slightly different technology, like that's hard. And so I think we way underestimated that, that hard piece. Great example. And lastly, the, your overall why, the, the desire for control, essentially. How's that feeling? How's that looking? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's held true, right? Like I wanted to be the dad and wanted to be the husband that I wanted to be. And then secondly, like if I'm not doing that, like I want to be doing what I want to be doing outside of work and feeling like I'm challenged, feeling like I'm fulfilled. And so that's kind of held true throughout, um, throughout now. I don't know. Ask me in 10 years. I don't know. We'll, we'll still see if that's the same answer, but it's been so far so good. And your kind of desire that I, that I mentioned at the top, your early desire for stability, having watched your father and grandfather's business collapse, essentially, do you still have any kind of nagging anxieties around stability or the lack thereof? <laughs> no, my, my, my wife would tell you that like I thrive when there's like all kinds of randomness like going on. So I think yeah. that was a, uh, it was a fear uh, mm -hmm. decision, not necessarily like an actual honest decision. So yeah. at least that's, that, that's, that's, that's what I'm saying right now. <laughs> all right. Great. Anything else, Michael, that we didn't hit on that you wanted to make sure to share with the audience? Yeah, I think the one thing I would add, kind of having talked to hundreds of folks, some of the advice I got was make sure your partner is 110% on board. And uh, my wife, Caitlin, and I talked about search a long time before. And she was frankly more, on, she was on board before I was. Um, and her uh, her being on board showed up kind of a number of ways throughout the search. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a wild emotional journey. And uh, the searcher is not always the emotionally stable uh, partner that they, they should be. Um, and the, there, there's sniffing others, one who absorbs a lot of that. And so I think for Caitlin, the way it showed up, like, I think any, almost any way you cut it, she is more 
uh, pro- professionally successful than me. Um, and so it was a bit maybe unorthodox for us to lean into my career um, with the with going the search route. And so she's, uh, it meant putting career opportunities on hold and maybe putting others on the table for her. Um, I think she'd tell you she's happy where she is now and like very grateful for kind of the difference that opportunities that came up, came up as a result of her kind of having to follow along with what worked with search. Um, but at the same time, like the, maybe the best example was now been doing search, the deal that we closed on Bay business group. Um, I met David, I came back, was telling Caitlin about it. Um, and she was like, okay, great. Like, let's do it. And I was like, mind you, she's due in two weeks at this point. Um, and I was like, no, we do in two weeks. Yeah. Do in two weeks. And so both of us, uh, I was like, yeah, I was like, I can't do this right now. Like maybe like we'll come back in three months and then it'll play out kind of towards the end of the year. Um, she was like, no, no, let's, let's go for it. She's like, time kills deals. We need to get this thing done. I was like, (laughs) (laughs) wow. You know, when you have a partner who knows that expression, time kills deals, you know, you got somebody savvy at your side, savvy in deal making. Yeah. So, uh, she was like, go for it. We'll, we'll figure out everything else. And so leaned into it. The deal closed, uh, three months later, uh, that meant she was now two months postpartum and moving across the country, uh, with a two and a half year old. And wow. I was doing the weekly commute, uh, back and forth. Um, cause we were in Minnesota at the time, the business is in DC. And so, I mean, it was just utter chaos. Uh, it's things have slowed down a little bit now, but yeah, I mean, that's what her commitment showed up was, was like leaning into it at the absolute most chaotic moment of our lives. And so I think we're all grateful. We're all happy where we are. I think we're all very glad it's, it's slowing down, but I think without her support, like none of this happens for sure. Your podcast was an incredible resource um, for me as I was going through it. Like one, learning, but then two, just like hearing people with like what they did. It almost got to the point, like there were certain times during search where I like couldn't listen to it because I'm like, it just made me like, again, the dejected feeling of like, I didn't I didn't achieve what I was supposed to be achieving. But I think was just trying, my only main message was like, hey, if <clears throat> the, it, luck has a unbelievable factor of like, good and bad outcomes here. And so yeah. I feel like I've been luck has swung my way. And so uh, for the people that it hasn't swung their way, it's like, it was luck. It was not anything else is basically the message. Great message. Thank you. Thank you for saying that, Michael. Yeah. It's uh, running, doing the pod, you know, it, you, you want to be inspirational to people and show them what's possible. That really is kind of the rise on detra <laughs> of yeah. acquiring minds. Um, but uh, fully recognize that success story after success story can be demoralizing to people who aren't achieving the same success for for bad luck and other reasons. Uh, not to mention, it's it's just it's not a true picture of what goes on. It's not all all roses and unicorns as we know. And so we we also look for the unhappy stories to air as well. But those are those are harder to find. But we are always looking for them, audience. So if you want to share a story where things didn't uh, go as well, hit me up. Um, but good call out, Michael. Thank you for that. And if people want to get in touch, well, how do you prefer they do so? The old email is probably the best uh, best way. So that'll be in the notes. Michael Young, congratulations on finally hitting your is hitting some good luck and and getting a what seems like a great business. And thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, really appreciate all you've done. Thank you. 